0: Hello and many thanks for joining us on Search for Truth for the first programme in our new series called Once Saved, Always Saved. Each week for the next ten weeks we'll be looking at a different aspect of our salvation and the biblical evidence for our stance on the Christian's eternal security. This time Brian's given his talk the heading The Primary Salvation Decision is God's, Not Ours and we'll hear about it now with Brian. Yes, John, and as you say, today I'd like to begin what should turn out to be, God willing, a 10-week series
1: of programmes on the security of our salvation in Christ. We're looking then at what for some is a controversial issue, as any internet search would show. Not that I necessarily recommend it, it's not for the faint of heart. The issue is, does there come a point when a backslider loses the salvation that he or she once had? There are parts of the world where this teaching is so prevalent that you rarely hear teaching which says, One saved, always saved. Now, which is correct? That is, which is biblical? It's not a new assertion to say that a backslider may lose his or her salvation. For the Apostle Paul evidently debated with those who claimed just that. They raised the objection to Paul's preaching, with which Romans chapter 6 opens. Remember, that's where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, Paul must have been preaching, one saved, always saved, because of the fact that some were clearly reacting against it back then, saying, come on Paul, do you really mean to say that a person, someone who's known salvation by placing personal faith in Christ, a person like that can then go on to live carelessly and multiply many sins without any fear of losing his or her salvation? If that's the case, they argued, we might as well all sin at every opportunity if that means it gives God more opportunities to be gracious in forgiving our many sins. In chapter 6 of Romans, Paul shows how wrong-headed this point of view is. He begins his reply by saying in verse 2, By no means! How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is the basis of Paul's rejection of their we may as well live as we please philosophy. He tells them that the reality is that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has in fact died to sin. But what does this mean? Let's try to understand it from what follows. In Romans chapter 6, Paul also tells us that Christ died to sin. There must be a consistency between what it means for Christ to die to sin and what it means for the believer on Christ to die to sin, since both these expressions are used in the same place in our Bible. Paul is actually explaining what it means for us to die to sin by stating that Christ died to sin in the context of talking about our identification with Christ. That is, Paul reasons that if Christ died to sin and we are identified with Christ then it follows that we too died to sin. And so as a practical consequence, it would be out of place, it would be inappropriate for us now to lead a life that was dominated by sinful practices. That's the sense of the flow of this paragraph in our Bibles. And to prove that we've been identified with Christ, Paul shares two things. A revelation of what happened at our conversion, and an explanation of the meaning of our water baptism. These two things are linked by this idea of our being identified with Christ. It's at salvation, when by God's grace we are saved through faith, that we are identified with the Christ of the cross in his death and resurrection. When we believe, it's as if Christ's death becomes our death, and it's then that we receive new life in Christ. Later, in water baptism, we demonstrate that fact by acting it out that is, by being buried in water and rising again. Water baptism is only a symbolic witness to all who watch it taking place that we are testifying to the faith which has already saved us. If you like, our water baptism is a drama about our previous identification with a crucified and resurrected Saviour. We say again, Paul reasons here that if Christ died to sin and we are identified with Christ, then it follows that we too have died to sin. And as a practical consequence, it would be inappropriate for us to lead a life dominated by sinful practices now. The true preaching of salvation should never be misconstrued as being a license to keep on sinning. This is Paul's answer to those who found fault with his preaching of what amounted to one saved, always saved. But there are so many other ways of answering that objection, ways which we find elsewhere in Paul's writings and throughout the New Testament. Perhaps the one that I find to be the most persuasive, but we'll be looking at many of the others in subsequent weeks, God willing, but possibly the one I find the most persuasive is the fact that the Bible teaches us that the primary salvation decision is God's, not ours, which means that any view which permits us to lose our salvation seriously underplays God's sovereignty. Jesus invited people to come to him and to rest in the knowledge of sins forgiven in itself that famous invitation at the end of Matthew chapter 11 invites people to stop relying on their own efforts to obtain salvation and simply come and rest in the salvation which Christ is offering as a gift that's when Christ invites people come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest But in John chapter 6, the Lord pulls back the curtain and reveals something of the bigger picture of what's involved in a sinner coming to Christ. He says in John 6 and verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This agrees with the emphasis that Jesus gives also in John chapter 15, that famous chapter about the vine and the branches. Jesus there says to his disciples you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you. So standing behind our coming to Christ in personal faith is God's sovereign choice of each one of us who believes on the Lord Jesus. We find additional clarity on this point in the letter to the Ephesians and its opening verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. A moment's reflection ought to show us that if these things are so, If the matter of our salvation and eternal destiny has been of concern to God from before the foundation of the world, then it's highly unlikely that we should be able to toss it away on a whim, or even by a later quite deliberate rejection. Loss of faith in a believer is tragic and brings about a loss of enjoyment of the assurance of salvation. But salvation itself, as God's sovereign gift, remains – having been underwritten by God's own choice from before this universe came into being. We've commented before in another series on the ninth chapter to the Romans, and so we won't offer much comment again on it now, but it's worth reading it and bowing our hearts in awe before God and the majestic outworking of his sovereign purposes. We'll break into that section of Romans 9, where the Apostle Paul is countering the usual concerns which arise from our limited perspective of God's sovereignty. What shall we say then, he says? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? That's who can resist God's will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory?' God's sovereignty is very plainly taught in our Bibles in passages like that. But equally, so is human responsibility in other places in the Bible. The one cannot deny the other. We have no alternative but to affirm both as biblical teachings. It's been simply put like this, and here we'll have to leave it for today, that when a person comes to Christ for salvation, it's as if he or she approaches a doorway standing above which are the words whoever wills or whoever believes. They take the step of faith by receiving Christ as their personal saviour and so, as it were, pass through the door into life. Now, as a believer, they glance back and see the doorway from the other side, the doorway through which they've passed. And on this side, the lettering above the door reads chosen in Christ. That's a truth. For the adoring believer. So let's summarise what we're saying. The Bible teaches us that the primary salvation decision is God's, not ours, which means that any view which permits that we can lose our salvation seriously underplays God's sovereignty. This is the first of many more biblical reasons we hope to share in this series, all aimed at showing that for the Christian believer, it's a case of once saved, always saved. I want us to enjoy biblical assurance of salvation.
0: Tim says that the Christian is chosen in Christ, O wondrous grace, assured by him a heavenly place. So I trust you have that assurance too, after hearing today's talk. If you'd like to study this subject more closely, then there's a transcript booklet available which covers the whole of this ten part series. If you'd like one or more for group study, ask for the title Once Saved, Always Saved. You can contact us by email or by post, and here's the address. Search for truth. P.O. Box 70115, Chelomene, Blantyre, Malawi. And our email address to write in for the booklet is sft at churchesofgod.info. You can also find a selection of programmes and other helpful material on our website at www.searchfortruth.org.uk. So we've really appreciated your company here today and I hope you can join us again next week for a further talk on One Saved, Always Saved. Until then, it's our very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye for now and may God richly bless you.
2: stream of love I love